Well, thank you, team. Merry Christmas, everyone. It's, um, you know, last night we were completely full and had about 10 people on live stream. Today we're 10 people here and 150 people on live stream. It's just kind of one of the uh, fun things about Christmas landing on the weekends, but I'm thrilled that you made the time to be here this morning. And for those of you that are with family and happen to be uh, peeking in on live stream, we're thrilled that you could join us as well. It's, uh, I can't think of a better reason. I mean, we have the greatest privilege in the world to gather together as believers every Sunday to focus around the person of Christ and help get our spiritual compass and our reality uh, in full bloom in terms of uh, seeing things correctly in a really dysfunctional world. But could there be a better reason than the advent of Christ to get together as a spiritual family and uh, celebrate his presence? Well, last night we talked a little bit about God's generosity, and this morning we're going to piggyback on that to talk a little bit about God's good works. And I want to obviously connect Christmas uh, to what we're talking about, but this morning I'm not going to do the typical you know, manger scene type elements. In fact, uh, the text that we're taking this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And uh, I want to do it because there's nothing that portrays the generosity of God in more profound theological reality than Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. Uh, and I want to begin just by reading it for you and with you if you want to follow along. And there's really four critical points that this text is going to talk about that we'll get into in a minute. Uh, for the fact that it's 10 verses long, there's only four sentences in this entire section. Uh, and uh, that's because it was written by Paul, who um, all he knew how to do is run one thought after another after another uh, to make his point. But that being said, let me uh, take the time just to read through this, and I hope that you'll look for uh, and try to get a feel for the generosity of God and his good works as it's dripping all through this particular text, and I think very appropriate to why Christ came in the first place and therefore relevant to how we celebrate this morning. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, back December 25th, a little bit before our time, 1914, was kind of in the swells of World War I, and uh, it happened to be Christmas morning when a lot of the German troops who were on uh, one of the sides of the no-man's land as they were fighting over Europe, uh, 
they end up cease firing and they put their guns down and they actually started singing Christmas hymns and songs together. And if you were paying attention to anything that was going on, at certain points along, as it would be the Eastern and Western fronts, the soldiers of the Russian, the French, the Briton, heard brass bands actually joining the Germans as they started singing on Christmas morning. It was kind of an odd thing being in the middle of a war where they're trying to kill each other, where they were started singing Christmas songs. At the first light of dawn, many of the German soldiers actually got up out of their trenches and started walking across no man's land, uh, wishing in the native tongue of the people they were fighting, Merry Christmas, which to the opposing allied forces was like, this has got to be a trap, but apparently it became pretty obvious that these German soldiers were not armed, and so they laid their weapons down, and they got up, and they started wishing each other Merry Christmas in the middle of a war, which is really kind of a past novel thought, but doesn't happen very often. Uh, They exchanged presents like cigarettes and apparently plum pudding and sang carols together. There was even a documented case of soldiers from opposing sides playing a good-natured game of soccer. Uh, The so-called Christmas truce of 1914 came only five months after the outbreak of war in Europe and and would probably be one of the last examples of an outdated notion of chivalry between enemies in warfare. Uh, in fact, uh, several months later, uh, this bloody conflict of World War I sort of upped a notch when technology got into full swing, and then this idea of doing something, this chivalry with one another, just literally went out the window and has never been seen since. Um, I, I found this a fascinating uh, element of life because one of the great misconceptions, I think, of Christmas is that God is giving us a narrative to help bring a temporary truce to our conflicts, and we ought to get together, give ourselves each a hug, sing some songs, and then the next day, as soon as New Year's hits, we go back to our civil war with one another and family members, and we get right on with the same behaviors that we were enacting beforehand. I think what's intriguing about this is that you begin to think through these stories is that when we look at Ephesians 2, we don't think of Christmas. In fact, as we begin to think about it, there is a truckload of stuff in these verses that if you know me well enough, we could take, we could rival the book of Romans going through this section uh, in terms of time and energy spent on these particular fragments of theological truth. But I want you to notice, and what's important to notice, is that the Christmas story and narrative is not a temporary truce where God gets us to kind of lay down our differences for a while. The idea here is that it's not an appeal by God that we temporarily set aside our conflicts and uh, give gifts to one another and try to make each other happy for a temporary period of time. This is not about uh, setting resolutions for the new year so that we can improve our relationships. The, the, The spirit of Christmas does not take on some of these temporal little things to make us feel better about ourselves. The idea of this really comes down to the fact that Christ came as this infant, literally, if I can put it in these terms, as a warrior who was on battle. And he came not to offer truces, but he came to conquer the evil one. If you'll never understand Christmas, if you don't understand that this is God's champion, that this is the one that's going to be the forefront in the battle and he has come for war in many ways. 
because he knows that humanity lives in this imprisoned state, as we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 2, that's impossible for us to free ourselves from. And when we begin to understand the generosity and the good works of God, when we, above all people, are undeserving of it, we will hopefully will walk away from this morning even with a much deeper level of gratitude about the generosity of God and how profound it really is. The danger is, is in a culture like we do, where everyone lives with the temptation of being entitled and deserving and people ought to be catering to me, this rubs pretty hard in the, in the face of that in to know God's generosity when we have no way to make any claims to it at all. But what we want to picture here is the amazing generosity and goodness of God that is so profound that words sort of escape me to find the proper words to capture the reality of his good works towards us. There's really, as I mentioned, really four sentences that really describe this. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is all one sentence, and we'll sort of flag the, the element of that, but it's really talking about the good works of God. And it's going to tell us that he is rich in his mercy because of his great love towards us. And that'll be astounding as we sort of touch on the first three verses because we are so undeserving of it because of what's penned in these verses that it's staggering. It's beyond our human ability to get there. In verses four through seven, he's gonna t- we're going to talk about the wonderful works of God. It's almost even beyond just the good works that God has done, but they're truly wonderful in that he made us alive together with Christ. And again, where we could never accomplish it on our own. In verses eight and nine, we see the excellent work of God because he saves us by grace. And then in verse 10, it's amazing that God continues his good works through his people as they live in this intimate relationship with him and find a way to extend the good works that God has shown to a very pagan and dark world, undeserving in every sense of the word, but it's where you and I become part of the works that God wants to do in this world. That we become his ambassadors to do things that keep reflecting not only his good work, but his wonderful works and his amazing works because of what he is doing in us. And if that doesn't catch your heart, then there's no reason to spend any time on Christmas worshiping him at all. And I want to sort of challenge you to think And somehow in the process of something that's so familiar with us that it can even breed contempt, to allow the Spirit of God to dig down into your soul and your spirit to help you get a fresh appreciation for the incredible reality of his generosity and good works. I know it's hard because we're waiting for gifts later on today. And we get more excited about Christmas gifts than we do about the incredible gift that God has given to us. And so I want to just briefly walk through it. The first one in verses one through three is that the good work, God's good work is to be rich in mercy because of his great love towards us. Now I know there is massive amounts of truths as we wander through this, and let me just try to pen a couple of these for you. The first thing it begins by telling us is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, which that's the way our normal life was. We walked in these things. When it means spiritually dead, it doesn't mean we're unfeeling or that we don't have any conscious awareness of our life. The idea of death means separation. So when we were spiritually dead, we were disconnected and separated, as we all are, from the source of that life that we have in the first place, and that's God. 
In all of his grace, he allows us to continue to live, but we're deserving of death because of our rebellion towards God. And when God sent his son Jesus to come into this world as an infant, he gave us, it's one of the most amazing acts of generosity to to give us an opportunity to be rescued from this spiritual death that we have to live with. We still operate and function just like everybody else does, and we kind of go, I don't know, life feels pretty normal to me. I have good moments and bad moments, but I'm enjoying life and I'm doing things, and I'm engaged in it, and I've got responsibilities. I get to have experiences that, because of I earn money, it allows me to go off and do some things. So we're, we're kind of going like, I don't understand this spiritual death stuff. But what it means is that God in his generosity has made provision for us to continue to live in a world that he created even though we have been completely separated from him and have no interest in pursuing him as a general humanity. It talks about following the course of this world. It's a mode of existence that says our beliefs and our values and our priorities have been shaped simply by the temporary things of this life. The, 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 the food, clothing, money, wealth, God gives us the capacity to earn those things, but it's simply driven by the things of our flesh. The the verbiage here is really at times overwhelming when he talks about us uh, not only being dead in our trespasses, but that we have conducted ourselves according to the influence of of the, the spiritual entity called Satan. The prince of the power of the air is the one who influences this world. He's described in scripture of the God of this world and for all intents and purposes, we're prisoners. We're we're prisoners that are held captive in an environment that in our myopic perspective feels normal. We live in this greenhouse of life that because we were born into it and we grew up in it and we've learned all the practices of it, it feels perfectly normal to us. Living according to the impulses of my flesh and mind. If I want something, I take it. If I feel like I'm entitled to something, I go after it. I make the best that I can. But the whole problem is, is that we're still dead in our trespasses. And if, as we follow the influence and allow him to shape our thinking and our mindset, he, he, he's going to do things and convince us of things that make sense in the physical world that we live in, but it keeps us even more separated from the God who is the source of all life. And, and so he, he talks about the sons of disobedience, that, that we live in a world that's literally a prison camp, that we have no sense of freedoms even though we think we do. We can pursue all kinds of things in life, but we can't escape the world. The best that we can do is take a, get NASA to shoot us up into the space and we think there, there's better hope on Mars and, and the moon than we do in our own environment. The, the, the danger is, is that we live according to the passions of our flesh. doesn't mean that we're profoundly intelligent and creative. We can appreciate all kinds of things about this life because we're created in the very image of God. And all of that gives us the capacity to think and be creative and have an imagination, and enjoy the beauty that God has created around us. And because of all that, it lures us into thinking that we're the captains of our own destiny, that we have a direction in life and we can accomplish whatever we want to. And yet the passage is pretty profound that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We live according to our own inclinations. We become our own authority in life, and we think we become the deposit of truth to that, that 
determines what reality is. And as I've said it many times ago, when God looks down on us, I'm sure he sees a bunch of four-year-olds strutting around with their chest pumped up, thinking we know stuff and fighting over each other's toys. In some respects, our existence seems absolutely pathetic. But it's in spite of all that collateral brokenness that's part of humanity, where there isn't a single exception that we're alienated from God, that the passage comes back to us and say, because the greatest work that God does is about to be unleashed on us in the person of Jesus, because of his rich mercy, because of his great love towards us. We have trouble loving one another. We have a hard time being kind to one another. It's very easy if someone ticks you off that all I have to do is defriend them and I can alienate myself from somebody else because they're not living up to my expectations and demands. And the collateral spiritual filth that fills the humanity and in our own lives clutters up our life so we have a God complex thinking that we are control of our own destiny and that we can pass judgment on others is, is at times one of the most hapless and hopeless statements of humanity that you could ever read in the scriptures. And yet in spite of all that and our rebellion towards God, it says he is rich in mercy because of his love for us. I don't know what that does for your mind. The danger for many of us is, well, I've lived a pretty good life. I mean, he doesn't have to love me near as much. It's not near as painful to love me as it is so-and-so because their life's been a train wreck. And it just shows how naive we often are in our own journey that we don't realize that Christ died on a cross for my sin. No matter how squeaky clean I think I am, that this is what God sees, is an individual who lives according to the flesh and his own inclinations. I've bought into the whole world system that Satan controls and, and allows me to think much greater of myself than I really am. And I don't know about you, but when I come to this idea that he is rich, filthy rich in mercy, he loves me anyway. I've got people around me that love me in spite of all my dumb antics, my bad behaviors, my uncalled for comments. When I could give them reasons to say, look, I, we really don't want to hang around you, you know? And you may face the same kind of situation in life, and yet, in spite of all this, God loves us. And he doesn't judge us, he doesn't condemn us, he doesn't pour out his wrath on us. Mercy simply says he doesn't give us what we deserve, but he goes to the next one, which is simply this. God is wonderful in his work towards us because he's made us alive together in Christ. Boy, I know I don't deserve it. I, I don't know how you think about that, but I think I can pretty safely sure, even if I don't know you as well as I know some people, that if the Bible's true, you don't deserve it either. Some people know it really well because they know the choices they've made and the trauma that they've created in their own life or that others have inflicted upon their life 
And they can look God in the face and go, yeah, I really know that I'm so unworthy of this. But God's wonderful work is that he made us alive together in Christ. Now, obviously, the in-between piece that he doesn't explicitly say here is the gospel. The reason why God makes us alive isn't because he loves us. We dealt with that last night. God's love doesn't save anyone. It's only when we respond to God by surrendering to him through faith in Christ and all that he just did, not only in terms of coming into this world as a human being, but being the perfect substitute for us in satisfying the wrath of God on the cross and then being raised from the dead, when we surrender to him and receive Christ into our life, he literally takes us from being spiritually dead and makes us spiritually alive because he connects us to the one who is the source of life, and that's Jesus himself. I didn't manufacture that. You didn't create it. You can't buy it. You can't barter with it. You can't be good enough to get it. It's simply the mercy of God because of his love and in all of that, he is, his, his most wonderful work is he makes us alive together with Christ. What that means is I have a new tra- trajectory. I see reality completely different than I did before. For those who've truly trusted Christ, they now have a perspective that looks at life through the eyes of Jesus, not their own selfishness. I mean, any knucklehead can be selfish, We've mastered that. We know how to be self-centered and self-absorbed and narcissistic. It doesn't take anything for us to be that way. That's naturally intuitive to us. I don't have to care about people because I'm selfish. And some people have mastered it. And unfortunately, at times, even Christians master these things. They still allow the old way of life. But when I trust Christ and he makes me alive with him... I'm now surrendering my way of believing certain things and I'm gonna now adopt the way God says I should believe. It may not be intuitive to us, but it's like, listen, you gave me life and now I'm gonna be on a journey where I'm gonna surrender to you and you're gonna teach me what I need to believe and what I need to value. And as much as there's this temptation to hang on to the things that I think are important because of your incredible generosity and love towards me, when it's so undeserving, I'm willing to set aside my way of thinking and I'm going to adopt your way of thinking. It's only our ongoing sense of having a God complex and our own myopic selfishness that would say, yeah, I've trusted you, but I'm still going to do things my way. And the glory and the beauty of Christmas is that this infant child, Christ, gives us hope of living a full and meaningful life that pleases God not just indulges our own selfish tracks. His good work is fueled by his grace. Grace is that which simply is where God, in his kindness, provides what is both necessary and sufficient for us to experience the life of Christ and experience godliness. He provides everything that we need in order to live a holy and godly life. We're not victims anymore. We're not chained to our past where we can't overcome things in our life. We can experience it. And the gospel allows us to forgive, to to experience one of the most profound things that gives us more freedom than probably anything else and that God forgives us. We are spiritually separated and at odds and enemies with God 
because of our sin and our trespasses. And when God comes along and sees that we've received Christ, he forgives us for all of that. He gives us the righteousness of Christ so that we have a right standing with God. We never have to worry about, is God going to kick me out of the family? Or, or if I make a blunder, am I going to get removed? Or is God going to distance himself and alienate himself from me because I just can't live up to the Christian life? That, that's kind of the typical performance-driven kind of life that we live in. It has nothing to do with it in terms of our relationship to God. And then what he does, on top of that, he adopts us into his family and he says, all right, you're my full legal child. You have all the rights and privileges, as it were, of being part of my family and I'm never going to let you go. And I think one of the most profound things that we struggle with is not seeing our identity as being children of the Most High God. I mean, it's, it's one generous gift after another. God is so lavish in his giving, it is ridiculously mind-blowing. If you actually thought about it seriously and tried to consider all that God has done. And so God's wonderful work is that he makes us alive together in Christ. But then his excellent work is that he saved us by grace. Eight and nine is probably some of the most well-known verses that we have. For by grace are you saved through faith. We're not saved by our faith, we're saved through faith. We don't save ourselves by saying, oh, here's a good self-help person, so I'm going to hire Jesus as a coach to help me get through my issues. That's not the issue. It's not an intelligent, as it were, decision that I make on my own. Is I willing to be saved by his grace through faith, and it's not of ourselves, which has all kinds of theological debate by what it relates to, but clearly, we're, we're not saved by anything that we do. It's not a result of works. It's one of the most difficult things. We have to turn in a resume to prove our worth almost in everything in life. When you apply to school, when you apply to a job, when you want a position somewhere, we always have to turn in our resume to prove that we're worthy to do the things that are there. The thing with God is we hand him a resume and he throws it out and says, what does that have to do with anything? You're not, wor- you're not fit for anything that I want to do. So when we turn our backs, start walking away when we realize how completely hopeless we are in terms of our standing with God, he taps us on the shoulder and says, listen, you can't do anything to earn my favor, but I want to choose you to be part of my family. And then the guilt starts setting in. Well, what do you mean? I don't, I don't take favors from people. I can prove I can do this on my own. I don't need help. We've never said that to each other. But at the heart of God's generosity and his good works is he's saying, listen, there's no way I want any of you to think that you have to give me a resume to prove your worth at all. I've told you the story, but... I've sat down with people once in a while to say, well, God would never accept me because I'm not like you. Or and I've also talked to people to say, well, if God's really a God of love, then he'll accept everyone. And I said, you know, the problem with that is that if you and I stood before God and God says, why should I let you in? And you say, well, I think I've been basically good and I haven't hurt anybody. I should get in. I'm going to go, hang on, I want to file a protest to this. And they're going like, why? 
I said, dude, if, if we want to talk about works, you've had no interest in church, no interest in God. You think you're basically good. I've spent 90% of my life chasing God. I, I've got a, a four-year degree at Briarcrest that I've, I've earned and worked to study to be in the ministry. I was in ministry for three years. I went to Western Seminary for four and got a double master's. I went to Dallas Theological Seminary and got a D-min. You haven't done anything. Jesus turns and looks at me and says, that's why this is by my grace, so that knuckleheads like you can't brag about why you deserve to be in there and they don't. Oh. But it's the same reason why you can't stand before God and boast about how you think you're worthy to get into his heaven and maybe other people don't. Because there isn't a single human being who's worthy on their own merits and their own resume to convince God to let them into heaven when they finish the course of their life. It's only because of this infant who clothed himself in human flesh, had to live with people who live according to the flesh and are dead in their trespasses and sins and then allow them to crucify him to a cross where he was buried and raised on the next day, where he can extend his hands and saying, listen, you are totally a mess. You're totally unworthy, but because of what I've done, I'm inviting you into my family so that you can live forever. And so it's not a result of works. But then in verse 10, he comes back and makes this incredible statement, what I will describe as God's amazing work is that he keeps on demonstrating his works through his people. We are his workmanship. And even there, many of us get into sort of this performance-driven kind of mentality to say, well, he's got a lot of work to do on me. He sure isn't finished with me yet. Oh, and there's somebody around that you think he is finished with? Because the moment that I think God is finished with their work of working in our life, that's the moment he takes us home. Because if he's completed everything that he's going to do in us, he doesn't need us here anymore. And the only way God gets the glory is that people see Christ and his work in our imperfections. The danger is that there's many Christians who try to come off with, hey, I've got it all together. I've got my act together. I know how to live by faith when maybe I certainly don't. Isn't that been one of the the bane of most churches is that people have this facade like they've got it all together and I live by faith and they're a train wreck inside because they struggle just like everybody else with their faith. The issue has nothing to do with perfection or having our act together. It's allowing Christ to, to be the workman who keeps shaping in us Christ. And the Spirit of God keeps teaching us the beliefs and the values that he has. Probably the greatest thing we can brag about is, wow, I learned something about God's kindness this week that I had just been an idiot before. Now most people wouldn't admit that because it's kind of like, well, then people won't think that I knew anything about kindness. Kyle, you don't know anything about kindness. That's why he works in us to manifest the work of the Spirit of God in us in the face of our imperfections and our brokenness so that he gets the glory. I'm not here to impress people about what I can do. But it says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus 
so that we can do works that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And God continues to demonstrate his generosity and his good work by taking broken, frail, insufficient, messed up human beings and he keeps shining his glory and his grace and his mercy through their lives. And if we would have the courage to allow people to see our, our vulnerabilities and our brokenness, then that's the chance that the window opens so they can see his grace and his mercy. But if we tighten everything up and we try to pretend that we've got our act together, then we rob God of his own glory. And the only one who truly reflected the fullness of his glory was Jesus coming into this world as an infant. And so when we think about Christmas, we have to think about the cross. One of the things that's becoming part of our DNA here at Oak Grove is that we want generosity and good works to be the fabric of how we operate, both internally and with those in the world. On January the 22nd, we're going to have a really extraordinary and unique worship service on, on that morning. And we're going to look back on the last year and see the different things of how God has worked in individuals' lives and in our ministries and those things. But we're also going to discover, in a sense, a way that many operate now, but a fresh way of showing generosity and good works to others as a point of helping them see the grace of God and his mercy in our lives as broken and as much as we may stumble around. We want people to see Christ, not be impressed with us. See, I will propose to you that when we really understand the reality of Christmas, we will always see it in the shadow of the cross. And as we step into the new year, we shouldn't, the, the thing that we want to brag about is not what kind of gifts we got, although it's fun to talk about that stuff. What we want to do is start a whole new way of life, a whole mode of existence that, if, that, that begins simply with our extreme gratitude for the generosity and the good work that God has done towards us. I mean, if we can't catch it from Ephesians 2 and about how generous God is and and his good works, I don't know if you catch it anywhere in the scriptures. Because all that he tells us is that his good work is grounded upon his rich mercy because he loves us, even when we were his enemies, even when we were ungodly, even when we suppress the truth of God in our unrighteousness. His works are wonderful because for those who submit to God by putting faith in Jesus, he makes us alive together with him and we start a whole new mode of existence where God becomes our coach and the Spirit of God becomes our teacher and our instructor. We learn a whole new way of wisdom and truth because of his word. It doesn't make sense to anyone else in the world, but it makes perfect sense to those who've trusted Christ. And then we get to celebrate this amazing good work of his grace that saves us because it's not of ourselves. And what's truly staggering is the reality that God continues his good works of generosity and good works through you and me. We don't want it to be perfect. 
Because the danger of being perfect is we hide God and we impress people with ourselves. One day at a time, one flimsy step after another, the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ shines through these broken vessels so that others might come to know this child called Jesus that Christmas is the Christ who saves them at the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you of things that we know that we still don't understand. We can read about it and you give us a concept of your extreme and radical and eternal generosity and good works. I pray that your spirit will just continue to wage war on the apathy of our heart at times and give us a fresh new sense of the tremendous weight and value of all that you've done. In some respects, no matter how chaotic the world is, how can we not live with hope when we've seen your generosity towards us? How can we not live with a certain level of enthusiasm because of the wonderful reality that you've made us alive together with Christ? How can we not live with joy when we see the amazing reality that you've saved us by grace, not based on our resume, and that for some mysterious and confusing and difficult thing to grasp, that you want to take every single one of us as broken as we are, and you want to continue your generosity and good works through our lives. And at Christmas time, it may not be gifts, but it may be the one person that we sit beside and allow them to cry on our shoulder. It may be a friend who's alone and doesn't have a place to find any sense of relationship. It might be a coworker as we step into the new year who is really struggling because they're going through divorce. Father, we want people to intuitively have a sense that there is something different about who we are because of who we know. And we pray that as we step through Christmas into the new year, that we would live lives based on your generosity and the good works that you have lavished upon our life. And for this, we are tremendously grateful for your gifts And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.